Plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, comedy and impressions lover. And I'm Fran, super fan of reality TV and rom-coms. And we're from now. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Good to have you here. Now... I'm going to be very honest. You've just got me for the opening and the close this week, and it could go either way. Uh, Fran's been feeling a little bit uh, poorly, but good news is she's feeling much, much better, albeit a bit croaky. So we're going to persist with me. But what is good news? Simon Helberg is our guest this week. I am so excited to speak to this guy. Of course, Howard from Big Bang Theory, one of the best comedies, well, arguably ever. Uh, the masterpiece from Chuck Lorre. And of course, Howard, the bowl haircut. Okay, he didn't have a PhD, but he did design a space toilet. So I think that kind of, <laughs> I think that makes up for it. Simon, of course, is not just the comedy actor in Big Bang. He's done multiple other projects. Do you remember Old School with Will Ferrell back in the day? That was a great film. Uh, he was in that, but he's actually not afraid to challenge himself as an actor and, and, and take part in, in more serious projects. Uh, serious Man by the Coen Brothers a few years ago. And recently got a Golden Globe nomination in Florence Foster Jenkins opposite Meryl Streep and Hugh Grant. And he's not afraid to challenge himself again with his new film, Annette, which is in cinemas now. It's directed by Leos Carax, a melodramatic musical, expected to be poetic, expected to be dark. Uh, he plays an accompanist uh, and pianist, conductor opposite Marion Coutillard and Adam Driver. It's very, very interesting, to say the least. Um, so he'll be talking about that as well as Big Bang. And he's also a very, very talented impressionist. So if, you like, if you're like me and you love impressionists, go and watch him on Larry King on YouTube. He does an incredible Nicolas Cage. I mean, very, very good. And that's kind of where we start. And then following Simon, we've got TV critic Boyd Hilton dropping in. Because now I've just done a report looking at our behaviors when we're trying to search for content. You know, when you're scrolling through now or Netflix and you're trying to find something to watch. And sometimes there can either be too much choice or you're just not in the mood for a certain title. Well, there's a report that they've done that kind of analyzes our behavior and how much time it takes to actually find content. And now I've put together curated collections based on the most talkable and most loved content. So it's easier to find things from the off. So Boyd will be coming in to talk through that and some of the best content coming up. Really looking forward to that. So we've got a lot to cover this week. We better kick off. Here it is. Simon Helberg on Plot Twist. Simon, welcome to Plot Twist. Lovely to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I was just saying to Fran, you might actually be the perfect guest for me because in my intro, I say I'm a comedy lover and impressions lover. And you're oh. obviously a, a fantastic actor. Thank uh, you. A diverse actor, a very funny man, but also you do some incredible impressions. Uh, if you say so, yes, I, I, um, I do. I'm a well, I saw you on Larry King. I saw you on Larry King and the, the, the Nicolas Cage impression is phenomenal. That wasn't Larry King. That was actually me. So that's how, that's how amazing I am. <laughs> he, he died long ago. Uh, and I've been doing him for years. Um, no, thank you. I, uh, I appreciate that. Is that something that you've always done impressions? Is that something you've enjoyed? It, it's, it's a pretty fast way to make friends or lose them depending on um, <laughs> what, what, what you're doing and saying. But yeah, I, uh, I would always do impressions of teachers. Also another kind of hit or miss endeavor, but um, a, a lot of the times it was a hit. It, it started like people would say that I looked like Nicolas Cage to me when I was like, you know, oh gosh, seven or eight years old. And um, I felt some kind of obligation to, to channel him. And then I, I remember when I, I think it was seventh grade, there was a girl that I liked and uh, we were watching Sliver, which is a really kind of <laughs> silly thriller movie with Billy Baldwin and I think Sharon Stone or somebody. And um, the girl was talking about how handsome Billy Baldwin was. And then she sort of said, 
hey, you, you kind of look like him. So I, I went home and I did everything I could to just completely embody <laughs> Billy Baldwin. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was, it was just a, really just a way to gain uh, approval and validation um, from teachers, family, friends and girls, which, I mean, what isn't? Exactly right. I tell anyone to go on YouTube, look at that interview and look at those impressions because they're very good. Um, we're obviously here to talk about Annette, your new film. We both watched it this afternoon. There's a lot to distill and ask you about. <laughs> but before we, before we do, we'd like to come up with a bit of trivia, a few random questions, just to you know get to know each other and so forth. I've heard a, a little story, and I wanted more of the backstory from you, that you snuck into a club and then you bumped into Rod Stewart. Is that right? <laughs> well, I almost sat on his lap, but... Um... <laughs> so it's better than we thought. Yeah, yeah. I thought he was I- inviting me. It was a gesture, but I think it was he was calling security. Uh, I, yeah, I did. I, I don't know. It was like w- one of those, you know, like a cheese dream. I think, uh, or we call them fever dreams. But I've heard in, in the UK they sometimes refer to them as uh, cheese dreams uh, when you eat too much cheese before bed and then you hallucinate. Yes. So that that's um, yeah, that's what it was like. Uh, yeah, I, we ended up, it was like a VIP room. I was probably 18 and I was in college. And and then they said, they took us into the VVIP room. Uh, and I don't even know why, really. We, we were with like a couple of younger, uh, I mean, we were all young, but we were a couple of the people we were with, or one of them maybe was was an actor and was just starting out and very handsome. So they 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 treated us all like we were handsome, even though we weren't. And uh, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, it, it, it if you're handsome enough, they take you... F- just way into the back back uh doors uh, that lead to other doors and then there was just an empty room yeah and there was like a throne and it was off center in the middle of the room and rod stewart was sitting there and it was just it just made no sense at all like i I don't know how long he had been there uh if he had you know it could have been days um and they didn't want to disturb him but and then we looked at him we all kind of said is that rod stewart and we you know we all talked about what should we you know what should we do? What do you do when Rod Stewart is just sitting, a sitting duck? Um, and then by the time we kind of turned around, the whole room was filled with like what looked like supermodels. So I don't know what was going on. I don't that know. That sounds like Rod Stewart. Yeah. And I think that, I don't think it was because of us, <laughs> but I like to at least pretend maybe it had some, when, when we walked in, they called all the supermodels and Rod Stewart was just, that. you know, he, he just, he just was in the right place at the right time. How I did you that. end up on his lap then? Or was, did that not actually happen? Uh, I'm not allowed to say. Uh, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> I was in the lap of his, of his mind, uh, the lap of my imagination. No, no, there, were no, there was no lap, no lap sitting. Uh, no. Just in the cheese dreams. Yeah, yeah, just, just uh, yeah, with, with enough uh, brie, anything is possible. <laughs> well, talking about hypothetical, Fran, you've got a situation. Yeah, we like to ask just occasionally like a very random question. And this one was actually um, inspired a bit by Annette, which obviously you play a conductor, but also we've read that you're a very talented pianist. So we thought we'd ask a music-related question. Oh, jeez. If you could share a piano and play some music with anyone... Who would you choose? Literally anyone. Oh, gosh. I, I would have to say there's a piano player named Brad Meldow who who plays jazz, who's, I think, maybe the... I, I think he might be the greatest piano player around and at least my favourite, I should say. And I would just want to learn something. I, I It sounds... You know, certain people... Most of what I hear when I hear it, I it's not that I can play everything or understand exactly how everything is played, but I usually understand at least that there two hands are making those sounds and and I have some idea of mm. maybe how but when I hear him it it just doesn't make sense it's like every finger is its own <laughs> organism and 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 I would like to just sit near him and just huff the 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 genius um yeah I mean that would be pretty pretty awesome I'm sure you know I don't know and if you, one of you guys wants to do a duet too I'm open to it I just I, you're you're very far away <laughs> but we could we could figure something out <laughs> I probably need lessons first. That's the problem. I can give you lessons. Um, well, I'll, I'll take you up on it. Let's do what it. What an offer. Yeah. What an offer that is. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> Intercontinental piano lessons virtually. I'm offering them <laughs> one day only. What about, um, that was obviously a big passion of yours growing up, music and jazz and so forth. What, what, what are your passions now outside of work? Oh, outside of work. I mean, gosh, you're, you ask the tough questions. I, I think, I mean, my... <laughs> Not to be cheesy, but my kids would come to mind, which is good. It's good when your kids come to mind. Um, uh, and 
I run a lot, which I don't, I, I don't know if that's good or bad at this point. I, I run so much that I, I, I feel essentially like I'm just kind of running from my, my demons and I'm running so much that I'm, I'm shedding more than demons. I'm turning into like, I'm turning into like a demon. I look like Gollum basically because I, I, I'm a thin person. And if I run four miles, you know, five days a week, it's a, uh, there's just nothing left. So I, I do it because it, it, I have so much energy and anxiety all the time that I have to, I have to like run it off, but I'm hurting my body, I think, and I'm losing the little body that I have. Um, so I, I don't, but it, I know that sounds kind of like a masochistic passion, but I really do. <laughs> I, I need it's that quite time. Addictive, like, though. I get it. It is. It's quite addictive. I, yeah. I never liked it. I never understood. And, you know, everyone's always like, oh, you need to exercise. And I just always kind of shrugged it off. I did a lot of, you know, uh, martial arts when I was a kid. So I did a lot of like actual, I yeah. moved a lot. And, um, and then I did a lot of yoga before the pandemic hit. Um, but then the idea of, you know, breathing uh, in a tight, <laughs> crammed room with sweaty people during... Slightly less appealing. Yeah, a global health crisis didn't really make a lot of sense. So I started running and yeah, and it's like, I love it and I hate it, uh, I, I guess. It, it not not love and hate. What what would be the way? I don't know. It's it's almost like work to me, which I I love. But it it's like I sometimes it's just something I, I need to do, and sometimes it's very hard, and sometimes yeah. I don't feel like doing it, and sometimes it just gives me a ton of anxiety. And but I'm like compelled to do it. That's how I feel a little bit about running. So I enjoy that. Do you find when you do it that you're more mentally balanced out? I do overall. Overall, I I, I think um, I just I, you know I, I I like idle at such a high level of. Um, worry all the time that it, it, and it's not always rational you know, I'm just I guess I'm just kind of so I, I have to I have to kind of expel that energy and I've heard other people talk about it and I, I've heard you know I know and I started doing it a lot while I was working like when I did a net oh my god I mean the pressure was just it's all there's always pressure but sometimes there there really is like a there's like a palpable amount of pressure when you're doing things like what we did in the movie and working with those people and you know, all of these between conducting and singing and drowning and, you know, yeah, it's like, mm. so yeah, yeah I, I had to, I had to run and meditate every day before working and sometimes during it too, just to oh, wow. keep that focus and get out that, all that excess. I don't know. Do you guys do, do you, do you rec yeah, I, I'm with, the, with Yeah. With the running, I'm either all or nothing. So I'm doing it like a man possessed or do the half marathon and be all on it or I'll do zilch and I'll neglect my body for months. Yeah. It's, it's never in between. How about you? Yeah. I'm definitely someone who I can feel when I have an exercise and like you say, I'm the same as you. Someone, I'm a bit of an overthinker. I get a bit of pent up energy and there's nothing like going and doing like a really hard gym class or going for a, a, like a long run. Yeah. Cause like you, I feel like that just really like expels that energy. That's just like boiling up inside of me. I completely get it. Yeah. It's, it's men mental separation, isn't it in a way? Yeah. It, it is like, I don't know. I, I mean, sometimes I also, I feel like you should be, you should be doing things with some sense of like that reflect some kind of, stability um and sometimes like i do feel like i'm running like a lunatic like screaming down the street like <laughs> ah you're just running uh, which i don't think is is the idea but you know sometimes you listen to music and you're just i i yeah i i think if if there's a release or some kind of meditative some way to like just channel you know, some, some semblance of, uh, presence, you know, the, the present moment, I, I, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And I mean, the pandemic is, has just kind of like magnified everything and it's a wild time. So, um, I don't know how we got yeah, on we, this tangent, but. No, no, that's fine. We're actually going to ask you our first plot twist question, okay. it being a plot twist podcast. Oh, yeah, so obviously we see a lot of plot twists happen on screen in TVs and film when you know, something unexpected happened. But if you had to pick the biggest sort of plot twist moment of your career or in your life so far, what do you think that would be? Wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, it would have to be the big bang theory I, I guess i mean i can't uh what's a series I, I, what's a series yeah yeah that that's i i mean i'd be lying if i said that wasn't the plot twist i mean it was years of of me playing nerdy characters and doing pilots that you know didn't get picked up and um and then finally landing this enormous show that was actually 
before Big Bang Theory, at least it had this prestige and, and anticipation, which was, it was called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. And it was Aaron Sorkin's new show with Matt Perry and Bradley Whitford and Amanda Peet and, um, and all these great people. And then that show didn't really, it, it kind of, it just didn't catch on. Um, and I ended up not really being as integral a part as I had thought. And so I was I was a little bummed out. I was a little still hopeful that that show would pick up and and carry on. And then Big Bang came around, and I was like, I'm not. I'm on a show. It's an amazing group of people. I'm not going to audition for the Big Bang Theory. And I've done those kinds of you know. I I, I don't want to lose the thing I have. And I've I've done enough pilots that haven't gone. I've played enough nerdy characters. And as as wonderful as the script was for Big Bang, I just thought I'm going to stay on this road. You know and I was convinced mm-hmm. by my agent to to go in for the Big Bang Theory, and and I mean it was a plot twist. It was a total like hard stop, left turn. The show was the first thing I'd ever been a part of that actually aired. You know where I was a where I was a a, a piece of that ensemble and um, one of the main cast members and uh, part of something that felt kind of special and and very surprising. So that. And my life changed, you know, um, and it changed pretty quickly. I mean, the show wasn't enormous out of the gates, but it was successful enough that we knew we'd be on and that I knew I could, you know, afford health insurance and, uh, you know, pay rent. At what, what point did you realize that this is this is a big deal? Obviously, it's a, a Chuck Lorre production and it goes on to get 20 million uh, weekly people tuning in. But at what point did you step back and think, oh, my gosh, this is a big deal? Probably when we went to... Mexico, which is, you know, where everyone realizes <laughs> their fate, good or bad. <laughs> Welcome to Mexico. No, I, I don't know. Uh, no, I, 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 we, we went to Mexico, um, Mexico City, and I didn't know why, really. I mean, I knew the show was airing there, but we got off the plane and people were chasing us and uh, to take pictures. And uh, we were on the cover of the paper the next day and we were treated like, you know, really high profile celebrities in bulletproof cars. And, uh, you know, and it was very shocking, um, because our show was, you know, in LA, it's, we're the, you know, seventh most famous person in a Starbucks or something, you know? So it's not like really that interesting. Um, and then we went to Comic-Con and it was a very similar thing. Comic-Con in San Diego, which is, you know, it was a convention at that point, really just for comic books, but they, they were like, well, these characters like comic books. And we were like, I don't think we belong here. I mean, now it's become this launching pad for, you know, and as we started to go more and more, we saw shows like, you know, Shameless or, uh, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm or things were like, what is that has nothing to do with comic books? Why are they all here? But at the time that we were there, it was odd for us to be there, even though our show is about that culture. And people were sleeping in the street to get in and we filled up, ended up having to put us in a bigger hall, I think, at, at uh, the first oh, time wow. we went and people were grabbing us and pulling our hair. And I guess when I realized, you know, when I left LA, I just realized like, oh, this resonates with people in, in a deep way. And I'm sure it does in LA as, as well <laughs> with some people here, but you know, LA is a different city and vibe. Um, different vibe, but um, it did feel kind of shocking. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, if you're going from one extreme to the other like that, that's that's incredible. Let's uh, let's talk about your new project, Annette. Now we've both watched it this afternoon. We're both still distilling it. I think that'd be a fair way of fair way of yes. putting it. It's um, uh, this sort of melodramatic musical from Leos Carax. Uh, now the director, you wanted to work with him, but you were prepared to go to extreme lengths to work yeah. with him. Why? Why yeah. was that? Well, he's like a mad little wizard. He's a genius, <laughs> and um, and he makes movies that are so singular and so visionary and and so rare. You know, uh, the first one I saw was Mauvais Song, but uh, I've seen. I think he's made like six, only six features, um, but they're just they're all brilliant. And then of course there's Adam and Marion and Sparks, and that was it for me. I, I just said, oh well, this is. I will go to the ends of the earth, and. Um, and I did. I think I found the very edge uh, where where we all fall off. And I almost fell off. But I, instead, I got a French passport uh, somehow or another, which was a prerequisite for the film. And I, I don't know what kind of international crimes were committed um, in, 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 in the, the midst of, of that process. But I have the passport and I'm not telling you where it is. Um, and that's that. <laughs> 
Yeah, the director is described as an auteur, isn't he, in many ways. And, mm-hmm. and literally in the first five minutes of watching the movie, you can completely understand why. It's very distinctive, the way it's shot, the switching between scenes. It's got a very unique sort of feel to it. Yeah. Yeah, there's, you know, it's like with Sparks too. There's, there's, you know that you're watching a, a movie of Laos's or you know you're hearing a Sparks song, but not because it is reminiscent of what they've done before. It, and yet somehow you know. It's like it, they're never repeating themselves but it's also personal, and that's so rare these days to really find people who just do what they want. They express themselves. They're not being focus grouped or filtered. And I mean, what Leos, you know, he's he, he's like he's a prodigy. He made a movie in his early twenties, his first film, and you know, it was brilliant and went to Cannes too. I mean, it's, it's just I don't know. There's some uh, those guys are real artists, and um, and just to kind of be in their wake is a gift. And and I'm just so excited to be a part of this thing and I, I feel like you know you're not going to see anything like this <laughs> this year and maybe that. ever you know whether you <laughs> yeah. know you, yeah there's other things you could probably compare it to but it almost defies in some ways I feel like criticism because it just is so exactly what it wants to be whether you like it or not it's like you can be like oh I don't I don't respond to this but Leos wanted that movie to be that way and he wanted it to feel the way it feels. And, and you know, it's not going to be for everybody, but it's going to be an experience that, that is kind of undeniable in, in, a, in a visceral way, I think. You mentioned about him being an artist. Does that impact the way that he directs you then? Is he very hands-on? Is he very specific with what he wants from you? Oh, yeah. He's very gentle. His exacting, meticulous way is is always is always gentle but it is very particular so it can be more like choreography at times more like you're a a kind of material that he's working with to express Mm -hmm. his vision and some people ask me if that felt kind of stymieing or or limiting in in some way and you know because actors there's you know there's a stigma around you don't want to over direct or give line readings or be result oriented is actors don't like that, which is, that's not totally untrue, but this never felt that way to me because the process felt exploratory and in some ways and experimental in some ways. And, and again, Mm. just so personal for Leo. So if he's going to say like that, he wants my head to be angled this way or my mouth to be closed before I say this line or to have the, the inflection go down or, to have the tear come here and then the, you know, these kinds of things, very, very, very particular, but Mm. also able to talk about it from a, a place, you know, from the inside out too, about, you know, the despair or the, or the, what, what the kind of circumstances are. So I just, I guess if there's enough trust in who you're working with, you want to be on his canvas, I guess, uh, that that's how I felt. And, and I like actually finding, having to find that freedom, you know, when those lanes are so specifically drawn, you know, when you, in some ways, the tighter the parameters are, the more the challenges to really find the, your creative expression. And I like that. I think that's actually kind of um, exciting. I think Laos is known, isn't he, for this sort of poetic, but um, tortured depiction of love, which kind of plays to sort of Adam Driver's sort of capabilities as an actor and what we've seen him in previously. What was it like working with him? Oh, well... uh... He is one of my heroes, uh, truly. I, and I, it's strange to say that because, I, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't tell him that, but, uh, but he really is. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's like sometimes you get to work with your, with your heroes and then you want to also be like, you don't want to freak them out. But I, I, lo- I love his work so much and I always have. And um, so I was very excited to well, kind of literally jump in the ring with him. It's, it's in did. many ways what, yeah, it's in many ways what you'd expect. It's... Um, he he's very focused. The work is is really what takes precedence, which I relate to a lot as well. And there's so many distractions on set. He does a very good job at keeping those out, so that the work is really mm-hmm. what what is happening um, and what is is right. You know what is what your priority is is <laughs> is that space, and it's kind of holy. And and Leos, you know, created a, a bit of like a church like environment too. So it felt very sacred in some ways. And then, you know, when you're in a scene with Adam, it's like, it's explosive and uh, new and exciting and dangerous in some ways, uh, not not necessarily physically, but just 
all the things you want. It, it feels like it's very alive uh, because that's how he is as an actor and that's how really great actors are, I think. It's, it's about, you're, it's, it's, you're discovering it as it's unfolding and then, and then you get to be surprised on screen. And then when you see that, that's the magic is when there's real yeah, life happening. Say, it's magical. Just before we ask you the one more plot twist question, what was the most challenging scene to do? Because each scene that you had, you've got the fight scene with Adam, you've got the scene where the camera's sort of revolving around you and you're talking to the camera, then conducting at the same time. They're quite intense scenes. What, what Was there one that stood out as being particularly challenging? Well, they all had their their challenges and they, they all were honestly very, very demanding. And you could it's, tell. It's, 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 it's hard to, <laughs> yeah. No, for for different reasons. Um, I mean, I feel like overall that the the conducting scene was required the most. It required so much technically, and then on top of that, you you had to add the the emotional component. So you know, there's the technicality of conducting an orchestra for real, which is something that is somewhat foreign and they were also somewhat foreign. Um, so I had to learn <laughs> a, a whole new skill, uh, and, and do that. And then there's the technicality of just what Laos was asking and where the camera is because it was all one shot, um, and how to keep my body and, and parts of it had to be still parts of it had to be in camera off camera. And then there was just the emotion and the despair, uh, that Laos was mining, um, and, and wanted me to, to go after in that scene. So it, it kind of was like a, it was a real uh, grand slam of, um, you know, uh, demands, I guess. Uh, and I had Emotions. to hit, hit, yeah, hit it all. So, uh, and we did like 24 takes and, um, wow. yeah. So, but then, you know, yeah, you, you see it and it, it, it kind of stands out, I think just as a scene, it's, it's like, whoa, you just, really you, does. Don't, you don't see things, mm. you don't see that kind of stuff often in, in, uh, in, in movies. Uh, and speaking of sort of co-stars, what was it like? having one of them be a puppet on set. <laughs> I didn't notice. Was one of them a puppet? Um, <laughs> well, it was wonderful. Uh, and uh, again, it was its own unique set of challenges, not to keep using that word, but, um, you know, I think that in, in some ways it might, I don't know what your experience as an audience member was, but it's like there's a lot of the movie is saying, hey, here's what it is that we're doing. We're making a movie. We're actors. This is a puppet. I hope you can kind of, come along for this ride. And then it's almost, it's saying like, we're gonna take you on a journey and we're not gonna pretend that it's real. It's going to be magical and it's going to be fantastical. And then all of a sudden, I feel like, I hope, and I think, I mean, as an audience, at least when I watched it, as an audience member, it's like you kind of, you get sucked in and you're, you're watching, you forget that it's a puppet. Um, or when you remember that it is, in some ways, it has even more of this kind of profound nature to it because it's just there's something so haunting and uh, and that was kind of what it was like working with her. And then of course there was the, the actual demand of having to operate her sometimes because of the way Laos was shooting. So there was another element that was like something that's like, oh well, this is something that I don't do. Uh, none of us do it. But Adam and Marianne were not puppeteers. But there's these Romuel and Estelle who are these French puppeteers who work their whole life as puppeteers and develop this creature for, for years as well, have to pass her off to actors and try to teach us very quickly in French how to maneuver her and trust that we can make their piece of art, you know, give, give it the, the justice that it, that it deserves. So there actually was like a nice, it lent itself kind of perfectly to the story, which was, there was a tenderness, there was a, you know, a, a bit of uncertainty there was just the, the the need to bring life to this um baby and and in in some ways like for the story at least for me that i think that was really helpful it was like i had to actually care for and guide this very delicate creature which was in in many ways um part of the story and i, I found it mm -hmm. uh i found it to be really entrancing yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of unique experiences working on Annette. It makes it really fascinating to listen to. But we do have one final plot twist question just to close us out. Okay. Um, and that's, is there anyone in your life that has been an unexpected person who has influenced the direction that you've taken or the experiences you've had? Wow. Oh, an unexpected person. Um, hmm. Well, there's a teacher that actually I got to take to the Annette um, premiere, which was a real thrill. And uh, he was my English teacher in 11th and 12th grade. And 
actually the course that he taught was called Great Books. It's the it's actually it is a course uh, that they teach in colleges, and I think it may have started at, at Yale. So it's a real kind of like fancy schmancy, you know, um, English <laughs> course where you where you read everything from you know the Bible to John Milton to Joyce to Proust and Camus, and you get into all the the you know Nabokov. Every you just kind of cover the gamut in eleventh and twelfth grade. And, and he also taught film classes. And he was teaching neorealism and French New Wave and showing people, you know, like some really racy, you know, oh, here's someone cracking an egg down somebody's butt crack. Uh, and, you know, you're like, <laughs> uh, and you're, you know, 15. You're like, oh, my God, um, I just want to watch Chris Farley movies. But um, so um, I actually didn't take his film classes, but he would show us some of those anyhow. So so I would say that teacher and his name is Jim Hosney and he's influenced so many people. Um, he, he really taught me about art, uh, I would say, uh, critical thinking. Um, you know, we would write these deconstructive essays and you were allowed to bring your own meaning to all of these incredible pieces mm. of work as long as you could <laughs> defend it um, and describe it and explain it in, you know, uh, in an essay, uh, or, or in class. And so you'd allow really to kind of, for me to bring this through line through literature and then music and film and life, and just have a moment of really being able to see the power of, um, and, and what we can bring to it, even, even as just a, as an audience. So I, I would say, yeah, he, he influenced me a lot in the way that I, the way that I approach everything really, uh, acting and, and just, life in general. So he, he's a real hero and, and he's, he's a huge Leos Carax fan. So I, I got to show oh, off wow. and uh, introduce him and that was really exciting. It was full circle. Well, Simon, thank you so much for coming on Plot Twist. Thank and you. Thoroughly enjoyed chatting and uh, best of luck with the movie. I believe it comes out on the 3rd of September in the UK. So, you know, film fans, get to your cinema, get go and see it. Thank Thanks you. Watching. Yeah, nice talking to you guys too. Oh, big thank you to Simon Helberg. That was great. That was really good. It was witty, some great stories. I love the story about Rod Stewart. <laughs> Imagine just going into a club randomly, sneaking in, and you spot Rod Stewart. That would be uh, quite an experience. But do you know what? I really loved his his wit and his humour, but mainly his passion for his work. You know, when he's talking about Annette, and he's talking about working with Leos Carax, and the sacrifices, what he was willing to do to get on this project. It was phenomenal. Um, we've both, Fran and I, have both watched it. It is intriguing. It is bizarre. It is poetic. It's everything you'd expect from that director. Very much an auteur um, you, you could describe him as. So go and watch that now. That's in cinemas. And also, who knows? Maybe uh, Simon and I, we could be running pals. You know, we could... Uh, I, I think I have a feeling he'd be a lot faster than me. It just seems like he was taking it a lot more seriously than, than my sporadic ways. But anyway... A big thank you to Simon. That was fantastic. Now, look, I did promise there'd be a second part of this interview. And here it is. Uh, now have commissioned a report, have done a report uh, looking at our behaviors when trying to select TV content to watch. It's not easy. We're always deliberating. Should we watch this? I'm not in the mood for this. Someone else in your family wants to watch one thing. You want to watch something else. It's not easy. So now I've put together curated content collections based on the most spoken about interesting best reviewed content across tv series across film across sport it's amazing and this is what we need so boyd hilton is going to come in tv critic extraordinaire he knows his stuff and he's going to come in and basically we're going to talk about the report uh, which has some incredible uh, findings about our behaviors when trying to find content to watch but also what are the things coming up that we can most look forward to so without further ado here it is boyd hilton on plot twist Thanks for having me, Tom. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honour and a privilege. Well, no, it's, it's lovely to have you on because for listeners that may not be aware, you know, when a new TV series comes out, a new film, there'll be a screening. And as part of this screening, perhaps at a fancy hotel or a theatre, often there's a Q&A. And the man that you need to conduct that Q&A is Boyd Hilton. Tom, You're fantastic at that. Tom, you so. clearly never attended one of my Q&As ever because you would. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have. I've uh, been to a few, actually. Thank you. That's um, very kind. Pre-pandemic, of course. but uh, They're back. No, I'm doing one tomorrow, in fact, actually. As we oh, yeah, I'm doing my first in-person Q&A 
for a TV show tomorrow afternoon. Yeah, I'm quite excited, I have to say. Do you still get the buzz when you do that? Because you've oh, spoken to a lot of good people. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's just fun. To, uh, if, if it's a show I'm interested in, yeah, I, I like, then definitely, yeah. In fact, I, I, believe it or not, I, I do turn down some invitations if it's a show that I really... Oh, really? Yeah, if it's a show I'm really not interested <laughs> in, I, I find it difficult to fake that, you know, enthusiasm. So Enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Luckily, there's many, many, many shows that I do like, so it's fine. Well, that's, that's a relief. <laughs> um before we we talk about the report and kind of then talk about this, the uh, TV shows in relation to that, just out of interest uh, from your perspective as a TV and film expert, what for you has has been that sort of ultimate series, ultimate film that is up there as your your Mount Rushmore of well TV and film? Um, there are the obvious ones, aren't there? There there is The Sopranos, you know, um, which of course changed I think a lot in terms of television just its kind of scope and ambition and quality over what, six seasons. So, but, and there's quite a few, you know, similar, there's like a kind of three or four, aren't there? Almost like a gargantuan giants of TV drama, particularly. But I would say my pick is, which is slightly less well-known, but I think equally brilliant, is The Leftovers. Do you know The Leftovers, which is... I do know of it, yeah. Yeah, The Leftovers was another HBO show. It should be on um, now, where, which was created by Damon Lindelof of Lost Fame and um, Tom Perotta, who wrote the original novel on which it's based. And it's basically about what would happen if a small percentage of the entire world's population suddenly disappeared. 2%, to be precise. So 2% of the entire world's population disappear at the same time. And what are you then left with? And it's Quite topical. This was all, you know, This the show came out quite a few years ago now. So it's all pre-pandemic and everything. But there are extraordinary kind of parallels to the pandemic because you know, it came out in 90, 2014, the first season, three seasons, 2014, 2017. But it kind of looks at how does this kind of huge event, tragic event, how does that affect humanity and the way humans behave? But it's it's told in a very micro way. So even though there's this massive, huge event, it's focused on a sm- on a handful of characters who you're really fascinated by, including like a, a, a sheriff of a small town played by Justin Theroux. And across the three seasons, you see how this huge, big global tragedy affects people. The people left, hence the title, the leftovers. And it is, mm. I think, it's the most powerfully creative, inventive storytelling on TV. And I'm including everything in The Sopranos. I think it's up there. It's in my top five, you know, of all time. And I think it's like that great. It's weird. It's peculiar, but it's instantly compelling. And a lot of it is about faith and religion and people going into really strange cult beliefs. And if you think of sound like Q, I think it effectively predicted QAnon because QAnon and, you know, that whole conspiracy theory world, I don't want to get into it, but people <laughs> believing in wild, mad conspiracy theories and behaving in a wild, mad way, that is all in the leftovers. Right at the beginning, there's this kind of cult-like group. And um, it's, it's yeah, I can't say enough good things about it. And it's got Carrie It's Coon very thought-provoking it. as well, Yeah, it's it? really thought-provoking. But let me, but I have to say it's very entertaining and gripping and compelling at the same time. It's a good, it's a good mix. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about this report from now then, because there are some very interesting stats in there in terms of our behavior when trying to find content to watch. Yeah. I mean, just to call a few things out. So we're spending over 24 minutes a week trying to find a TV series or a film to watch. And apparently it's more difficult to try and find a film. Yeah. And you think, okay, well, 24 minutes, that's, that's, that's okay. That's not too bad. But then that equates to something like 50, over 55 days of <laughs> yeah. an average Brit's lifetime. That's a long time trying to find content. Yeah, 100 days if you include films and TV. Yeah, hundred all, all together yeah. 100 days deciding I mean, what content crazy. to use that word. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's as a TV critic, if I can use that pompous phrase, um, which I have. Absolutely. Um, I do feel that there's more good stuff out there than ever before. So, you know, every week I get sent links or, you know, portals to previews of new series, particularly like in the scripted mm. field, like dramas and, and comedies, scripted dramas and comedies. And, you know, I would say three quarters of the time, they're all really, really good. You know, at the very least, they're all the production values and the way they're made and this kind of cinematic quality of these shows, including comedies, you know, some beautifully made comedies now. With comedy, you used to just stick, you know, five cameras on a soundstage and film it and it'd be fine. <laughs> now it's all like, you know, lavish, lush, you know, settings and cinematography. Anyway, so I think that it's an absolute fact that there's more good quality 
TV than ever before. And so inevitably, I think we're spending more and more time deciding what of all of that stuff to watch. And it is hard. It's hard to know what to watch without some kind of curation, some kind. That's, I mean, hopefully what I do in terms of writing about all this stuff in my in the magazines that I work for and the podcasts I do, et cetera, um, helps. But I think what now now's doing with its kind of um, different hand-picked collections, you know, dividing things up into different categories, one-offs and um, shows that everyone's talking about, which is really dramas, you know, um, word-of-mouth dramas and blockbusters, etc. I think it works, you know, I think it's quite, it is useful in giving people a pathway, you know, into what's what to choose because, yeah, the stats are extraordinary. Well, because also sometimes I think it came out in the report as well as a reason why it's just sometimes there is just too much content to choose from. Yeah. So how do you narrow it down? So at least by having this sort of created collection, you've then got the best sort of most talkable series to kind of then delve into. Yeah. And you'd hope that within that, there's got to be something that I think is going so. to pique your interest. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, because part one of one of the things that came out of, of the research was that people just often give up, you know, they just like spend, so they'll yeah. spend, you know, 20 minutes going through their EPGs or whatever, going through the different options and then just give up because they either don't want to be disappointed or, you know, they don't want to commit that amount of time to a binge watch. So I think... Having these collections where you can go and you can navigate it easily and you can see what the offerings are, which are which do reflect, I think, the quality of what's out there, I think that is a really useful tool, definitely. And before we talk about some of those created collections on now, when you're getting sent those various links to new shows and how do you then... Uh, you know yourself actually digest that and think oh, actually i would like to see that what stands out is there a theme is there um, is it talent no i think it's the storytelling i think within about five minutes of most tv scripted shows that i watch i know whether i think i'm going to believe it and whether i think i'm going to go along for the ride of the story and equally the same the opposite is true that if, if i watch five minutes of a show where i just don't believe any of it for, for a minute you know i think that also I'll give you switch a, off? Yeah, switch off. Or just, I, I mean, I'm, sometimes professionally, I feel like I'm going to have to watch, you know, I, I feel like I have to watch more than <laughs> yes. one episode, put it that way. But I can tell very quickly if I don't believe in a show, you know, if I just don't believe what the characters are saying, if the oh, dialogue doesn't make any, I just, it, it, you know, very, very quickly. And you may end up enjoying elements of it, you know, it may be deliberately over the top and ridiculous. So some, a lot of shows are, you know. You see, my my dad does that. He says he gets five minutes into something and he just yeah. switches off. I'm like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "No, I'm just not interested." And I said, "No, you've got to." There's certain there are a couple of anomalies where you feel like maybe you do have to persist. Like he was watching the flight attendant. I was like, "No, persist with this," and he ended up loving it. So yeah. you know, sometimes you do need to get through it. I know people who, um, you know, Succession season three is on its way. Thank God. You know, I, I, yeah. again, you know, I, that, that's what up there series. for me. Yeah, that's up there. But I know people. A lot of people say, "Oh, it took four, five, six episodes to get into it." Now, I know why. I can see why a bit, because there's a massive event in episode six in terms of like this big, huge, big social event. Do you remember? I think it's like in, in, in you know, a kind of political party mm. and all the characters are gathering and it's all kicking off. Whereas... As it does. Yeah, as it does. Whereas on the way to there, I don't know, there, is, there are moments where it's a little bit slow. I mean, I don't consider succession slow in any way, but I, I loved it from the start, don't get me wrong, but I know a lot of people took time to get into it, just to get into, used to the vibe and the, and the whole tone of it and you know all these all these people behaving badly you know but um so i think that's an example of a show that i i have heard different people have getting getting used to it at different times i i was hooked within those five minutes i have to say because i think i'm kind of intrinsically fascinated by media global media moguls and all that whole mm. world really that's quality production oh, as well so good i mean it's to be expected with hbo i suppose isn't it but talking about some of those creative collections then with with tv and film coming up on now there's obviously been a, some amazing series uh, and one-off episodes like the Britney yeah. uh, documentary that yeah. came out. There's been the Friends reunion, but then there's also some new series on the way. Is there anything that's standing out aside from Succession? Well, I think in, in the shows that everyone's talking about kind of category, which is where these these dramas, so I'm sure Succession will, will, will be in there when that arrives. But now you've got, got The White Lotus. You've got The White Lotus now. Yes. I think it's the best, I think it's the best show of the year so far. I really do. I watched, so Mayor of Easttown is also right in this category. You know, HBO, you talk about HBO, still incredible. You, uh, hard to beat HBO, I think. You know, almost all of it you can watch on now. Let's, let's make, make that clear. So let's make that clear, I watched yeah. Mayor of Easttown, right, months ago, and I thought, oh, it's going to be hard to beat that. It's going to be hard to beat Kate Winslet in a riveting 
crime drama, kind of Rolls Royce of a crime drama. Then along comes The White Lotus, and I think The White, White Lotus is even better. I think it's so funny and clever and smart. I think it's got something to say about, you know, the service industry and what it's like to serve privileged, you know, super privileged, wealthy, um, entitled people. <laughs> and um, it's beautiful, you know, setting this Hawaiian resort. So it is beautiful anyway, beautifully filmed and directed by Mike White, the writer as well. But it's also so funny and daring. It's so daring. I don't know. In episode one, there's a moment where one of the characters is talking about a health issue, and then there's a sudden cut to his genitals, basically. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's shocking and it's kind of... But it it's totally makes sense because it, that's what he's talking about. But I haven't seen any other show do that kind of sudden cut to a you know an image which is so <laughs> shocking and funny at the same time. And that's just in the first episode. You know, all the way through, they're incredible shocks and you know twists twists talking of your you know your podcast if you want twists then then there are so many brilliant ones are plenty in um the white lotus so that i think is the show of the year for me so far the new show of the year you know, in terms of a new yeah yeah but it's also built up an audience like certain series they need a bit of time yeah. to land and they can build up over time over multiple series but with white lotus and we kind of saw it a little bit with manifest as well mm. suddenly there was a dedicated audience right from the off so yeah word of mouth to, definitely to i think the word of mouth on the white lotus is, is is extraordinary because people get to these shock moments and they're like oh my god have you seen this bit at the end of episode four particularly the end of episode four <laughs> without wanting to go into gratuitous detail um yeah there are there are shock moments which are fantastic in that show and so that's yeah that's another section of the of these um curated handpicked well and then there's there's movies there's kind of blockbusters you know promising young one which i think is one of the best films of the year definitely yeah absolutely um, yeah i loved a, a movies yeah a movies actually was actually in, in terms of the comparison between movies yeah. and, and tv it's actually it's harder to pick as right. based on this report right. harder to pick a movie than yeah. it is to to find a series which is funny in a way because if you're committing to watch a eight hour show you know then, you know, that's a real... But movies, most movies are over in two, two and a half hours. Having said that, I was going to mention Zack Snyder's um, Justice League, which is, of course, four a bit, a bit and a half, <laughs> four and a half hours, I think. I really enjoyed it. I'm, I enjoyed the four and a half hour version of Justice League way more than the terrible two hour version, you know, that was the original <laughs> edit. Um, that, that, that he, well, his was the original edit. Then they took it away from him and, and edited it down to two hours, which was terrible. This version, I, I really liked it. There's something quite therapeutic about watching a four and a half hour film. I think you know you're I felt, really involved yeah, yeah really involved so those are there and you've got the sports as well you've got you know you've got the Premier League football. I'm That's a huge, phenomenal I'm an Arsenal fan so um, I'm slightly sad at the moment but coping with it and Ryder Cup coming up um, soon that's good it That's can only get better it can, it can only, only get, get better with yeah yeah um, looking looking further ahead mm. obviously there's lots of exciting stuff coming up you mentioned Succession Oh, can we talk about the Game of Thrones prequel? Can we? So I think we can talk like about a... it. I don't know. I don't know if anyone, apart from that, they really start shot, didn't they? Like an epic shot of the of a sandy kind of desert it, style landscape. Matt and, Smith, I think. Yeah, one in right. He was one, one of them. One in the middle. Yeah, like solitary figure. I mean, I you know all I know is it's set like thousands of years before, isn't it? Before Game of Thrones started, I think. Yes. Is that right? I think. I think so. I think it's um, a few hundred years. Four hundred years. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Um, there's so many. There's like five, I think. Am I right? Five, maybe <laughs> six different spin-off, prequel, sequel things in the works. Um, but yeah, I think that, I mean, that is, I think, I think it's due next year. So it won't, we haven't got long to wait in terms of, and that will be, that will be an interesting test, won't it? Of whether Game of Thrones... Will it retain the same audience? Will it retain the same yeah. audience? Yeah. I'm sure initially it'll be massive. I'm sure it will. I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing it will because the thirst for that kind of stuff, that kind of high fantasy drama is massive absolutely gigantic bigger than ever i love that we know it's coming but it's also hush hush you don't really quite know what's going to yeah, be revealed well, and right yeah they're very good at you know, that that's those those guys yeah they're very good at getting appetite i mean wetted i mean in your in your experience do you think game of thrones when we talk about the gargantuan mm. sort of series mm. do you think that is at, at the top of the i think it's, it's changed that we've arrived on that level no i think it's changed tv yeah but what, you know we talked about right at the beginning about the sopranos i think changed tv itself yeah and i think game of thrones similarly has but there aren't many shows i think that do but what i think game of thrones you know every single rival streaming service channel uh whatever tv content creating machine you can think of is doing is trying to find its game of thrones isn't it you know we don't we know yes, we don't have to name absolutely. them we don't have to name them but there are obvious examples of 
IP, you know, intellectual property of various fantasy slash sci-fi slash whatever epic. And they're all going for that Game of Thrones market, that Game of Thrones viewership, because it was the biggest show on TV, you know, when it, at its height. Um, so, but it's a hard, it's a really hard thing to get right, I think. Above all, so Game many of, different elements to balance So many different out. elements. Yeah, Game of Thrones was funny, yeah. you remember, you know, sexy. I mean, incredible amount of yeah. um, Raunchy. nudity. Raunchiness, yeah. Swear, it was, <laughs> it was fun. It was really fun. I remember right, right back to what I was talking about. And within five minutes of watching Game of Thrones, remember they scrapped a pilot. Whole pilot they scrapped right at the beginning because it wasn't. They knew it didn't work. That's, I think that, you know, kind of... Some, I didn't know that, Yeah, actually. absolutely. There's a whole pilot that they completely scrapped and they remade it, refilmed, re, re, reshot it, rescripted it, etc. brought in different characters. And the first episode is an absolute joyous kind of dark comedic delight, yes. you know, in terms of the guy throwing the little kid out the window in the end, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Remember, yeah, so it really, it got me, it got me within, as I say, within the first few minutes. I was late to the party. I suppose when there is word of mouth, sometimes you can go the opposite end and think, well, I'm not going to watch that. Everyone's yeah. watching that and you yeah. can be the opposite. So I was that, I was that miserable sob that was doing that for a while. But right. then I did get into it and I've then, I've binged it twice. So yeah, it has same, to be, yeah. it's up, yeah. it is up there. Yeah. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. Well, Boyd, I've, uh, I've, I've loved chatting to you about, the, about this. Um, Thank you. Perhaps we should get together when uh, Succession Series 3 is, is oh. all episodes around. We can have a bit of a digest. For sure. I think that's for sure. The, I'm uh, waiting for that email. From, next step. I'm waiting for the email you get from HBO saying, you know, episodes of Succession now available on your, on your special viewing platform thing, wherever it is. Yeah, I cannot wait. And whenever you're doing another live event for now for a, for a TV show, I'll, uh, I'll make sure I'll pop down and say Excellent. hello. Good. Do that. Thank you. Thanks very much. Wow. I don't know about you, but some of that is just incredible. How are we spending over 55 days of our lives trying to find content to watch? Well, hopefully we've got a solution now with Now's Created Collections. Big thank you to Boyd for coming in and speaking to us. That wisdom never goes amiss. And of course, a big thank you to our guest for this week's episode, Simon Helberg. And as I say, Annette, his new film you can find in cinemas right now. And that's it. That's it for this week. We've got a cracker of an episode next week. That's all I'm saying. I'm not going to give too much away. I'm just going to tease uh, the sort of thing that Fran hates me doing. But there we go. (laughs) We'll be back next week. Thanks a lot. Ciao. Ciao.